Today, I'm joined by Tom Mullen. He hosts the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom podcast and is the author of Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From? and What Happened to Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Find him at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com. Today, we're going to be discussing his new book, Anti-State Christmas. Mr. Mullen, thank you for your time, sir. Thank you, Keith. Great to be here. I want to give you a quote by one of my heroes, Larkin Rose. Tell me your response to this. Perhaps most telling is that if you suggest to the average person that maybe God does not exist, he will likely respond with less emotion and hostility than if you bring up the idea of life without government. This indicates which religion people are more deeply emotionally attached to and which religion they actually believe in more firmly. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he's right on the money and, and, you know, um, government or, or statists, I should say, especially from the left are, are hostile towards religion. And it's just so funny that they have such a religious belief in the state. And I always say, look, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to be a Christian or a Jew or a Buddhist or whatever. Uh, but if you're going to believe in something, don't believe in the government as a religion. That's like, you know, that's not like being a Buddhist or a, or a Christian. That's more like believing in snake charming or, or fishing through entrails. I mean, look at the results. Uh, absolutely everything it does is a disaster. You got better luck dancing and trying to make it rain. Now, uh, when we hear state uh, you know, people who've done, uh, you know, such a deep dives. We constantly, some of the things that, you know, come to mind, I think of the world wars, I think of Yemen, I think of, you know, putting people in jail for victimless crimes, ruining the lives of those people and their families and their future job opportunities. A lot of people will say, well, when I think of government, I think of roads and schools. I think of them more of like a parent or a provider. Popular meme once went around saying people who believe in small government and hate the state are sort of like dogs who just hate their owners. That (laughs) They say anyone can criticize anyone, but in reality, without the owner, the dog is left to fend for himself and will most likely die. When you come across someone with that mindset, the state is more or less a provider. How do you uh, communicate some idea to them that would make them either skeptical or uh, question their initial assumptions? Well, of course, we, the first thing we always hear about is the roads, as if uh, you know, 99.999% of the taxes didn't go to something else, including a big chunk for those wars you talk about, which kill people who've never attacked us mostly kill people who've you know never done anything but but uh, you know defend their own country but you know getting back to the roads you know the roads are terrible i mean monkeys could be trained to manage the road system better and i spent this most of this century traveling for business and a good deal of that travel was flying into an airport through the tsa which we can get to uh, in a minute and then having to drive quite a bit through many many states on the government's roads. And here's one observation, and this is probably charitable. You can't drive seven minutes in any city without incurring delays because of road repairs that never get repaired, never get fixed, or or an hour on the interstate highway system without incurring a major delay. This is not normal. It doesn't have to be like this, and it wasn't always like this. For the first 80 years of of the Republic, Private companies built and owned the roads. And I don't mean that they got, you know, tax money just to build them. They saved their own money um, 
formed corporations themselves and funded, owned, and operated the roads. And as horrible as the Confederates were, when they left the Union, they didn't have to do anything with their constitution about slavery because the constitution already defended slavery, unfortunately. What they did put in that was drastically different was the government doesn't get to provide any infrastructure, build any roads. That's how bad the few attempts to build government's ro government roads were before the Civil War. So it doesn't have to be like this. And it's one thing after another. You know, first it was the roads, and we just learned to live with the misery of the government managing that. Then the government took over health care. And then they had a war on drugs. Now they're into education. Forty years ago, they started the Department of Education to make education affordable for everyone. And now we've got to forgive all these loans because uh, education's affordable for no one. Everything they do is a disaster and everything they do has been done and will be done better by the private sector. The roads question is much more important than, you know, than we think it is, because if the state provides something, we assume that they can be the only provider of that thing. So we're more likely to defend blatant atrocities and will always be criticizing people instead of institutions. So when they look at all the crimes of government, they'll say, yeah, you know what? I'm against that. I really hope they change that policy. But look. My grandma is on Social Security. I take the roads to drop my kids off at the government school. So, I mean, I, I, I'm against the wars, but I'm still going to, you know, make sure I'm voting and saluting and thanking the troops and everything else. So, really, once you get people dependent in this Bismarckian way, the human mind's ability to justify any other atrocity will almost fall automatically. Like, people will never say... Well, um, uh, I really think uh, the costs of going into uh, Afghanistan and Iraq were better, and e even though it led to uh, later intervention in Syria, they'll just be like, look, uh, the, the, well, without government, there'd probably be chaos. So uh, and they can't even take a blatantly obvious moral stance on something like, you know, drone kills 10 civilians in Afghanistan in response to, you know, well, what happened during the uh, the, the Afghan pullout. So uh, d did you see uh, the Chinese uh, spokesman the other day come out and say, we'll no longer tolerate American atrocities in the name of democracy? I heard about it. I didn't actually see the clip, but <laughs> good for it, him. <laughs> it, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know what? It, obviously, China, evil gangster regime. But c can we not play the what about card and just say, yeah, you know what? He's probably right. Anyone who's not willing to just take a uh, step back. Uh, l let's bring this to anti-state Christmas. So many people uh, on the right will justify government atrocities and say, well, it's called collateral damage. Well, it's for the greater good. What do you think Jesus's message would be to those people who uh, defend crime so long as it's done in the name of the state? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of woke liberal pastors might be telling their congregations, you know, you need to be meek and and suffer and turn the other cheek and be like Jesus and you'll get your reward in the next life. That's not the Jesus I find in the New Testament. I mean, I'm no theologian, but uh, according to the state of New York, I've mastered the skill of reading and interpreting literature for whatever that's worth. <laughs> and, and the Jesus that's in the Bible is constantly butting heads with the government, constantly excoriating them. Uh, and he's not even nice about it. I mean, at the end of Matthew, he goes on a, a diatribe against the Pharisees and scribes. I mean, 
don't forget, the whole story starts with the government trying to kill him while well, he's still a baby. I mean, what what better um, you know comment on the government is than that? And why are these Pharisees and scribes you know so out to get him? Do they really believe that he's a threat to anyone's soul, telling people to love their neighbor as themselves? No, he's a political threat. He threatens their power. The people are listening to him instead of them. And so they're constantly trying to trip him up, constantly trying to get him on some trumped up charge so they can kill him, uh, which they eventually do. So, you know, he's he, he's the greatest libertarian in the world to me. He never has one nice thing to say about the government. And when he runs into a law like the guy with the withered hand that says, oh, well, you shouldn't cure him on the Sabbath. Uh, forget it. I'm curing him. Yeah, yeah. Hey, d- d- uh, disobeying regulations at uh, at the early stage. That's good because once there's regulatory capture, he couldn't have said that. He, he would have been he he would have been uh, encircled. When it comes to the idea that uh, Jesus was giving away things to uh, for free to people in very vulnerable situations, we see this today with people advocating progressivism, socialism, or uh, communism. Uh, about 17% of uh, the professors in the social sciences identify as Marxist. Jesus was a communist. How do you respond? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, there's, that's crazy on so many levels. I mean, number one, the obvious thing is he never says, let's start a government program to help the poor. He tells you to help the poor. He tells me to help the poor. He certainly doesn't tell you, let's put the Pharisees and scribes that I just got done taking to the woodshed about how sinful and hypocritical they are. He never says to put them in charge. That's number one. And then for a socialist, this this Jesus has some very curious parables where you know he always represents God himself as either a capitalist or a property owner. And the Bolsheviks, like the uh, the uh, husbandmen in the parable of the uh, vineyard owner, you know, the Bolsheviks are are the villains that are going to get kicked out, you know, and suffer for eternity. So, you know, he's always put it this way: those are all spiritual lessons. I get it. He's not making an economic lesson in those parables, but it's kind of a funny literary device for a socialist to use to make the capitalist the hero. What else does the right uh, have to learn from the story of Jesus? Well, you know, and there's a chapter in my book called Jesus Dunks on the Left, which we're, I was just referring to. There's one called Jesus Dunks on the Right. And I think there's a lot to learn from the woman caught in adultery um, because they're about to stone her for this. Now, of course, people are punished rather severely for even legitimate crimes in the Gospels, like the guys who are crucified for robbery <laughs> next, next to him. Um, but, you know, when it, Jesus comes across this rather moral crime, and it's a little ambiguous, it's not clear to me from reading it, you know, whether the woman was married, uh, somebody in the, the act was married, but this is not a crime against the property of somebody else other than violating a marriage contract. So, of course, you don't kill somebody over this. You don't throw somebody in jail over this. Um, you know, he tells her, avoid this sin in the future. This is not good for you to do. Uh, what a great parallel to the drug wars or to any kind of victimless laws against any victimless crimes, prostitution. Of course, we don't want everybody to go out there and, and be prostitutes, but you know, this is not something you use force against because no force was used, uh, in aggression. 
big uh, Facebook uh, d- debate the other day in a in a group I was in. Every now and then, it can get uh, pr- pretty uh, pr- productive, uh, depending on uh, so long as you pick the right groups. The statement was, Jesus would have supported you taking the vaccine. What do you think about that and the obvious implications behind that? Well, I don't think even I have an objection to anyone taking the vaccine. It's, again, would he would he put the Pharisees and scribes in charge of which vaccines get approved and, <laughs> and, and, and to tell everybody they have to take them? Of course not. That's all he does is criticize them. His whole, the whole gospel is about him fighting with the government. So, of course, he's never going to let the government be in charge of this. He doesn't want to be in charge of what goes on in this world himself. He tells Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not looking to rule over the people you rule over. I don't think that that can in any way be taken as an endorsement of Pontius Pilate's rule. He's rather dismissive of Pilate and says, hey, I'm not going to answer any questions. Yeah, just another way, he's very libertarian. He, don't talk to the cops. Don't talk to the government. Don't, don't provide any evidence. And what happens? He gets acquitted. And then what happens? The mob gets him killed anyway, even though he's acquitted. You know, I mean, you couldn't read a better book than the Gospels, even if you're an atheist, if uh, you were looking for libertarian principles. Once they lose the Jesus debate, they inevitably inevitably move on to Santa is a socialist, (laughs) freely giving out gifts to all, implying both kindness and equality, progressive values. How do you respond? Well, again, I mean, these people just don't understand any activity that isn't either mandated or prohibited. They, they just believe those are the, the two categories into which every act of uh, human will is exercised. But of course, no, Santa Claus, uh, even a, though a fable and economically a little spurious, he gives away gifts for free. And in fact, if you want to watch a great libertarian show about Santa Claus, Look at uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, uh, the one that uh, starts out, I, I think, with maybe Fred Astaire uh, narrating. And uh, Santa Claus, you know, we got Burgermeister Meisterburger uh, prohibiting toys, okay? Not far from prohibiting drugs. Again, you know, a completely, you know, harmless to other people activity. And Santa Claus bucks the system. He delivers the toys and the government responds just the way it has in the drug war. You know, it, it harsher and harsher me- uh, measures to prohibit uh, people from getting the toys, people from using the toys. At one point in the spe- in this little special, the government actually breaks down somebody's door in a no-knock raid. You know, the children are huddling in fear. I mean, wow, what a great message. And in the end, you know, there's a happy ending. I think um, the narrator says, well, eventually the good people of uh, Sombertown uh, learned that the uh, Burgermeister's rules were really idiotic and, you know, they got rid of them. Well, I, w- I wish we'd get that smart. It has been pretty encouraging to see all the protests in Austria, Germany. Granted, it's devastating to see what uh, what, what ignites them in uh, in the first place. There was also uh, great uh, sanitation workers taking a bunch of trash, throwing it into De Blasio's residency. We get uh, we do get some of this uh, re- rebellious spirit against blatantly unjustified actions. What do you think uh, people uh, can learn? 
if they are curious or if their hearts are sort of tugging them against the lockdowns, but they're also being pulled in the direction of, God, if I just obey, my life's going to be so much easier. What can they learn from the message of uh, the gospel, Jesus, or the Bible in general? Well, he bucked heads with the government. He had to die for it. Our our founding fathers and maybe the only justified war in American history got invaded, and a lot of them had to die for it. We don't have to die for freedom today. I mean, all it takes is a little disobedience. And believe me, these bullies have no spine. They're nothing like the British, who at least, you know, came in and backed up their uh, their edicts with force. You, you say, no, we may have to take some inconvenience. And that's really what it is. We may have to, you know, not patronize businesses that are going to go along with this. Is that fair to the businesses? No. Hey, life's not fair. We got to start resisting. And you're going to find that there's very little ability for the government to uh, enforce things like mask mandates and vaccine mandates. If you resist, they don't have the resources. Local town officials in a lot of places, including here in you know, the People's Republic of New York, we've got town supervisors saying, I'm not enforcing this all over the place. County executives, we're not going to enforce this. So you've got to get behind that. And you may have to take a little bit of economic pain and uh, maybe a little inconvenience, but you're not going to have to take a bullet for it. You know, we've got to stand up. It's time to say no. What is the thesis of your book? Where do conservatives and liberals come from? Well, the book really takes a look at the two philosophies. You know, we always hear, you know, the problem that for Republicans, we just didn't elect a real Republican. They're all rhinos. They're they're not real conservatives. So apparently the only real conservative in American history was Calvin Coolidge. And other than that, we've just, you know, everyone else has been a rhino. Uh, and there's there's a similar on the on the left, you know, a real progressive, a real liberal, you know, Barack Obama, he was too capitalist, Joe Biden's too moderate. And, and what I argue in the book is, no, when you look at the philosophers that, um, you know, these people parrot every day. When, when you listen to the left, you're hearing Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I mean, word for word every day. Not so, not as much Karl Marx. It's really more Rousseau. When you hear the right, you're hearing Thomas Hobbes. And they don't like to hear that. They say, oh, no, I, I'm more with Edwin Burke. Well, I have bad news for you. Edmund Burke agreed with Thomas Hobbes on just about everything. He did have a very, you know, significant difference in how the government should be set up. Shouldn't be one central authority with all the power. But other than that, I mean, the purpose of the government to thwart our liberty because we're so depraved that allowing us to be free would, you know, um, result in chaos and and savagery. You know, Burke was lockstep with Hobbes on that, right in the revolution, uh, reflections on the revolutions in France. And it's not so important that these enlightenment people wrote these things. What's important is you can see this thinking every day. Why will the, the conservative back the police, no matter how ridiculous the situation might be, they really believe that if we don't, we're going to be in chaos, that there's absolutely nothing called spontaneous order and also in trade you know tariffs are a very core conservative thing because like hobbs they see everything as a war and trade there's a winner and a loser what did what did donald trump win on we're not winning anymore okay nobody wins in a in a 
a, a, a voluntary exchange. Okay, there's mutual benefit or they don't make the exchange. So, you know, I don't want to pick on the right too much. The left is just as bad. They don't believe in property ownership. And that that's as anti-nature and as anti-common sense as, as possible. There is no such thing as freedom without private property, starting with self-ownership, but including and absolutely necessary ownership of the fruits of your labor. You have to have that or you can't have freedom. Well, it's like this Hassan Piker worldview of private property is terrible. It get, gives too much power and influence to too few people. Also, uh, the government owns the entire country and everyone in it. Okay, well, uh, doesn't that just completely violate the first principle you pretended to have like 10 seconds ago? Or even uh, even the right will say, um, Neville Chamberlain, the one thing we learned from him is that appeasement doesn't work. <laughs> and it's really important you blindly obey the police and the politicians whenever they tell you to do something. Larry Elder, who is so good on so many issues, says, you know, if uh, if you don't want to die, just obey the cops. Hand it 10 and 2. Do what they say. Sam Harris going as far as to say, you know, uh, th this whole, you know, sovereign citizen cult, it's like, Look, you get pulled over on a Tuesday instead of complaining. Well, worry about your rights on a Wednesday. He said that, I mean, just unbelievable. The whole point in uh, m mentioning that is there is an idea that freedom is selfish. So me saying, excuse me, officer, well, I'm kind of being uppity, not caring about everyone else in this state and the taxpayers and the people that I live amongst. I'm just caring about myself. Therefore, freedom is selfish. How do you respond? Well, of course, you know, nobody who runs for public office is ever selfish, right? I mean, <laughs> no, no, the uh, corporations that they that they make special regulations for. So my company has a an artificial advantage over yours. That's not selfish. I mean, I mean, come on, this this is childish type uh, behavior. And I mean, you could just say, look, I don't agree with the Declaration of Independence, which says that the government's there to secure our rights the rights that already exist before we even form the government. Now you could disagree with that, but why is it I that have to move to Somalia? Why don't you move to Somalia or move to Sweden or move to France or wherever you think they're doing it right? I mean, our country was founded on this idea and these um, conservative and liberal philosophies are pretty foreign to that idea. As far as property goes, all property is ultimately private. If you're eating food, um, that pro that is private property. Uh, even in, in Soviet Russia, people ate food or they would have died. And so at some point you have to take possession of physical goods. You have to exclude, you know, the own, the uh, disposition by anybody else. Okay. And have to act completely selfishly over those goods. So the only question really is how do they come into your possession? And if you say, well, the government decides, well, why is that better than a voluntary transaction where I I get from you something that you have in exchange for something you want that I have? No no rational person could think that, you know, people with guns just, you know, seizing things and deciding how to hand them out is going to be better. So it's it's a completely vapid argument. Um and, you know, all you have to do is really talk it through to yourself and you'll come to the conclusion that, you know, there, there's nothing to this. Yeah. B because you can't even defend the, the, 
it's okay to steal argument because the second the government has taken the trillions of dollars, well, it's wrong for them to exclude anyone from taking that money. So we should take it from them and then it should be taken from us. And the only right thing to do is for everyone to be constantly stealing from one another. They'll say it's terrible to have tons of money. So the state should take trillions and then exclude everyone. And then according to whatever uh, laws, regulations, or new plans it has, well, then uh, it, it can spend the money on those things. But then we could just steal. We can just go occupy the DMV. Uh, we can go into OSHA, and we can just take all their computers. Because uh, 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 that, uh, are you saying we should be forcibly excluded from property? I mean, I, I mean, they have such high standards for the average person. For QAnon is irrational. Russiagate, uh, nah, almost starting a war with a nuclear power. Nah, whatever. No one's perfect. They they were wrong. Every network was wrong for three years, and and they don't care. The, the 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 double standard they have is is just incredible. If you look at the Encyclopedia of Wars, they cite about 1,763 wars between 8,000 BC and 2,000 AD. About 6.9 or about 7 percent of the wars were religious wars. About 93 percent involved governments. How has the scam that religion is the cause of war been foisted on the public when it so obviously could be religion, but is most often government? Well, I, I certainly most religions advocate for peace. Now, of course, governments can use religion and twist their teachings and even, you know, line up with the administration of religions as, you know, some of the early um Roman Empire emperors did, I should say late Roman emperors in the late empire after uh, Constantine, you know, they kind of use religion by this conquer. Uh, that's certainly pretty foreign to Jesus's message who didn't even want Peter to defend his, his person with the sword. Um, so yeah, no, it's always the government and it's kind of the, a parallel to, oh, the big corporations are bad. Okay. So the big corporations use the government to, you know, get loophole holes for themselves, give them an themselves an advantage over their competitors, you know, rig the game, so to speak. Well, that's only because the government's there. The government created that opportunity and not to be an apologist for Jeff Bezos or whomever, but if you don't play the game, then you lose. So you either just don't go into business or you kind of got to play by the rules or your competitors will. So it's always the government. If you didn't have the government, then religion could never be an evil thing. And obviously commerce could never be a, an evil thing. Yeah, it would certainly make it much more costly for, for, for you to be evil. You'd have uh, both competitors and people wouldn't see you as, oh, th th this guy has a badge. So, all right, yeah, you, you can shoot a couple bullets through, uh, th through towns so long as it's overseas and so long as you do it while you're wearing camouflage. And, <laughs> and now it's all OK. We're going to come home and have a parade for you. Tom Woods has a great quote. He says, libertarianism is cultish, say the sophisticates. Of course, there's nothing cultish at all about allegiance to the state with its flags, its songs, its mass murders, its little children saluting and paying homage to pictures of their dear leaders on the wall, etc. Do you see that we are in a uh, cold or almost hot war against a cult mindset called statism? Oh my God. Yeah, of course we are. I mean, and, and the belief, that's what I was saying earlier is it's just so hard to see how anyone could believe in this. 
I mean, forget the roads. Let's just talk the war on poverty. For everybody who's liberal, who thinks we need the government to help the poor, how have they done? It's been 50 years. And now you think we have to ditch the whole system and start over because the results are so bad. Well, it's not like you, you haven't given the government a chance. It's really been, you know, over 100 years. And and for the right, okay, we need the government to bring manufacturing back to uh, America. Well, okay, we, we threw a whole bunch of tariffs up in 2018. And what happened? The ISM manufacturing index went in the toilet. It was in a recession. Nobody pays any attention to that. You know, so it's a disaster. It never works. My God, I mean, I, I was so fired up that socialism was making a comeback. I was like, didn't we prove this wrong in the 20th century, 50 years ago? Well, I'll tell you what, mercantilism, that's why economics was invented. Adam Smith yeah. wrote his treatise <laughs> to write against tariffs and mercantilism. That was his main motivation. So, I mean, these idiotic ideas just keep coming back. And here's the here's the, the catch. They appeal to your emotions. They, they, they show you some bad outcome and they say, here's what's going to fix it. No, don't look behind the curtain at the 44 other times we tried this and it was a disaster every time. No, it's going to work this time. We just didn't do it right last time. We didn't erect the the, the elect the right bureaucrats to uh, to manage it. So, you know, we've got to, yeah, we are fighting a cult and we're fighting a goofy cult. I mean, not even like, you know, something that has some plausibility. We're fighting the kind of cult where, like I said, people are fishing through entrails and, you know, looking for the answers there. It's that bad. I know. It, it, it's like it, I never see a Jen Psaki press conference and go, oh, God, I I, I got to get a uh, phone call with uh, the other guys from the Institute. We got to go over this and see if we could poke any holes in this. It's like you could just do a live stream as she's doing it at any point in your day and refute uh, all the nonsense she says. She went as far as to say the three trillion dollar, three point five trillion dollar build back better, which was their first version, not the one that just passed. It's going to cost zero dollars. And then she did this to the camera. She put this circle in the air to indicate it. And then Pelosi did the same thing like this as if it was perfectly coordinated. And then Joe Biden's Twitter account on the same day tweets out the same thing. So they think like literally two plus two equals five is the propaganda joke. They are literally saying three point five trillion equals zero. And they go, well, we have ways to pay for it. Do you not know what a cost is? It's like, uh, it, it didn't cost me anything. I just uh, paid for it uh, with my savings account. Well, that's a cost. That's a cost. It, it, so uh, I love the point about where it's not just a cult. It's a very weak one. And that should give us an indicator as to how much these uh, people are willing to enforce. So let's just take lockdown edicts, for example. Are there really officers and people in the military saying, oh, I'm going to I'm going to risk my life and die for Joe Biden. That speech was so terrific. Or, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi really <laughs> made some convincing arguments. I, if I have to kill 50,000 people, it's like, uh, I'm doing it for the paycheck. If five people resist, if if my wife starts, uh, you know, uh, nagging me about, uh, you know, doing a terrible job, if my in-laws look down on me, I'll probably find something else. Isn't that a little encouraging that they're so pathetic? They have people like Biden and Bush and Obama and Bernie as uh, their head spokesman. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if we could go in a time machine and just take the transcript from a uh, a press conference with Jen Psaki today, 
we could go back to Saturday Night Live and get paid for handing in a satire script. I mean, <laughs> it's really that crazy. And you're starting to see the wheels come off a little because, you know, when you see a guy like Bill Maher, yeah, he's still mostly, you know, in the cult. But when they go so far beyond anything like reality, you know, a guy like him starts to say, wait a minute, this is getting out of hand. You know, no, America is not more racist than it was in the 1960s when the Ku Klux Klan used to have rallies on the National Mall and get interviewed by news stations like they were some kind of legitimate, uh, you know, political organization. You know, no, that's that just can't be true. Um and, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that they'll just keep getting more ridiculous because you are starting to see people say, I, I, I'm just not going along anymore, even even elected officials. And we shouldn't put too much faith in them. But there are some, especially at the local level, the, the more local you get, the more real even an elected official is. Um, and I, it's a real quick antidote. I used to work in the healthcare industry all during the 1990s. I worked for couple of those evil HMOs. And it was the first kind of brush I had with the regulatory system. And I, and before I ever even heard the word libertarian, I formed this hypothesis that, you know, the governments are always incompetent, but as you go up the ladder, like the, the state government is more incompetent than the county government and the federal government. When I, once I ran into those people, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. They're, they're just off the charts. Now this is like 1995. I'm talking about when I was in management at an HMO and they were, you know, we, we, you know, give our life's blood to have those bureaucrats back in place of the ones we have now. So they just keep getting worse, but you can do some stuff at the local level and I'd encourage people, even anarchists like me, run for town supervisor if you think you could win. You got a lot of power there to say no. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, sh showing up uh, in person to those places, that's definitely where a lot of sort of intellectual energy is. So you can look at the number of people who are, you know, as social justice advocacy as the Gap or Ben and Jerry's or a lot of these corporations try to be on their social media is very few. The point is, is that these people are the ones sort of creating the narrative. They're the ones really standing up for something and making it easier for corporations to sort of take their side and create the idea in the populace that this is something legitimate. This is where our power should be. Uh, sh should be focused. So by talking to the people at least willing to show up to say something like, you know, town council or something like that, at least you're getting into the minds of the people who are sort of caring. Like if you're going to change uh, some minds, you'd want to allocate your time there probably rather than the average person who is not too interested. I could be wrong about that. I'm totally open to being wrong. This comes from me attending a lot of uh, the uh, school board meetings. A few years ago, I want to say it was like 2015 in uh, in Arizona. Some of the best conversations I'd have were at these uh, school board meetings with people, believe it or not, on both sides. When there's not a camera and there's not a lot of pressure in someone's face, they're actually willing to open up their minds and they'll say, you know what, uh, the, this, uh, the, this libertarian guy, uh, Ron Paul, I thought it was so stupid, but, you know, it seems like he was right about but d just foreign policy and the war on drugs and just the welfare state. Everything else, though, they're that they're, they're wrong about. And but actually, the more I talk, these people seem to have, you know, some good arguments just asking them, well, if we have the right to opt out of, you know, Catholic church education, shouldn't we just have the same principle for 
government, not anti-teacher. I don't hate you guys. I'm just saying, shouldn't we just have the same principle for uh, b- both uh, b- b- both systems? A- everyone on the five uh, chair panel was looking at each other, and and they said that that's something that w- we're going to address later. And of course, they never did. The point is, is at least it planted that seed. So. Um, I just went on that uh, l- little uh, t- tirade because I know people are going to say, town council, legitimize the state. Are you crazy? Unsubscribe. Um, all right, Tom, you have two other books. Just give me your quick thesis on whatever happened to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, well, yeah, again, that is the one that tries to explain that, look at the co- the conservative, the real conservative philosophy, the true blue you know, Edmund Burke philosophy is not consistent with the Declaration of Independence. It, it um, Edmund Burke did not believe that we have natural rights that we keep and carry into society, and that's the government's job to secure those rights. He says so right in the uh, recol- uh, Recollections on the Revolution in France, okay? And the liberal philosophy based on Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and, you know, once you read Rousseau, you can never unread it because you will hear word-for-word quotes from him every day by Elizabeth Warren, uh, Barack Obama, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's, you know, I'm not saying that they're carrying around his book in their back pocket, but they think identically to him. And what did he say? That in order to have a society, you need to have the complete alienation of of the individual and all of his natural rights and submission to the general will. So you can't have inalienable rights and alienate them all at the same time. It's completely antithetical to the Declaration of Independence as well, which was really based on, you know, channeling John Locke. And and he's the founder of libertarianism to me. And I know, you know, same thing. Everyone's going to unsubscribe. He wanted a government. He wanted a monarchy. Yeah. I mean, when you're breaking new ground, you you don't, you know, realize all of the implications of the principles you set down. But if you believe in self-ownership, you believe in the non-aggression principle, this is all Locke. This is the guy that, that, that crystallized it uh, more than anyone else before or after, or at least until Murray Rothbard. So, um, you know, the book there is to try to convince people that if you believe in freedom, you really got to ditch these philosophies and, and, and adopt ours. Is there any sense in which that could almost strip someone of their identity and give them a disincentive? So uh, couldn't we also say that uh, B- Burke's idea of the uh, general will and the desire for a collective will to be achieved, couldn't we uh, take that principle and say, sure, and the general will can be achieved through any of the millions of voluntary mutual aid associations that could exist so long as people have the right to opt out. We could say that government is the first organization we could cross off the list of promoting the general will because generally they would get our funding and participation voluntarily. So what we can cross them off the list. Other than that, yeah, I, I love the general will, mutual aid, churches, book clubs, all these other ways we could uh, voluntarily cooperate. Do you think uh, it could be beneficial to accept their premises and come to different conclusions? Or should we say, hey, we, we got to uh, cut this tree off at the root? Well, it's – it's. Um... I think you're speaking with Rousseau as the general will guy. Um, Burke has his own issues, but um, but I think you you really have to confront this whole idea of a general will. There's no such thing. I mean, there's no such thing as a common good. That's the whole idea behind the right to pursue your happiness. 
Um, why do we need a separate right from liberty the, the pursuit of happiness? The whole idea about that is everybody's happiness is different and it's not necessarily just material wealth. I mean, I'm not all that interested in that. Um, I, I do like the enough material wealth to pursue the things I want to do and not always be working to serve others, but we have to, you know, confront the reality that there's no, there never has been, and there never will be a general will. No American leader was ever elected by a majority of the population, including in the last election. Uh, if Joe Biden did indeed get 80 million votes, that's about a fourth of the population. Okay. So, uh, and believe me, everybody who voted with Joe Biden does not agree with everything that comes out of Joe Biden's mouth. So when he has a particular policy, uh, no, not even 80 million people voted for that. So it's just a, a concept that people have to get past. We've got to confront that. And, you know, again, recognize you, you can't have freedom if, if, if your will has to be the same as everyone else's. That's the opposite of freedom. But if there's no such thing as freedom if you've got to, you know, follow somebody else's will. What if freedom isn't what motivates people? What if it's safety? Uh, how do you talk to someone who says, you know, I, I just want to be safe and secure. I don't really care about freedom. Well, you know, why don't you move to Somalia? I mean, they've got a government <laughs> yeah. again now. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, really. But 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 think about how safe the government has kept you. Now, you've got, Excellent. let's just say, the FDA. OK, they're supposed to make drugs safe. Uh, and even before this whole covid disaster started, I mean, they have thousands and thousands of drugs on their waiting list to be approved. And by the way, the last time I checked, Germany had like two dozen. So they're a lot freer than we are in that respect. Why are they doing this? Do you really believe that they're concerned about public safety? Or could it be that the established pharmaceutical companies who already have products out there selling don't want more competition? You know, you really have to decide for yourself what's more plausible. How gullible are you? Now, every drug that's been kept off the market by the FDA has resulted in somebody dying who could have been saved, or at least somebody, you know, who got seriously ill that could have been uh, not seriously ill. That whole EpiPen disaster, okay, that was all because there were many other competitors that the FDA wouldn't approve. And when you look at the reasons that they answered that question with for why those, those other solutions weren't approved, no reasonable person could believe oh, this had to be kept off the market because the delivery system was different. Come on. It's because the company that owned EpiPen had influence with the FDA. I'm just talking about one little agency. And let's not forget they can draft you, send you to <laughs> Afghanistan for, you know, God knows how many years and get you killed over nothing. And that goes for sending us to Serbia or I think we only bombed Serbia, I'm sorry, or Iraq or Vietnam or Korea. My dad was a Korean war veteran. And I'll tell you what, by the end of his life, he said, he said this, and he died on Veterans Day. He said, we should have marched on Washington DC instead of Seoul. And this guy was as true blue American rah-rah veteran as you can imagine. <laughs> that reading the newspaper turned him around on that. So the government's not keeping you safe. You'd be a lot safer without it. I could give 40 million examples. I, I, I love that answer because it doesn't say, no, no, just screw safety. Freedom's more important. You just take their premise and apply 
it, you know, logically using the economic examples of, yeah, I love safety. I, I'm I'm more crazy about safety than you are. That's why I support uh, achieving our safety through voluntarily funded competing organizations instead of one monopoly organization that Lon Horiyuchi murders Vicky Weaver, shoots at Waco survivors, and then gets a pension. Yeah, th- that's not exactly the beacon of safety that, uh, that, that you think it is. Speaking of safety, let's talk about The Good War, a book you and I both love, Cap Buchanan's Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, How Britain Lost Its Empire and the Lost the World. What is the big takeaway from this book, and why do you love it as much as I do? Well, I should preface it by saying, you know, if Pat Buchanan were sitting next to us, he'd probably have hit hit both of us over the head with his chair by now because <laughs> he doesn't really agree with us on a lot of things. But boy, is he ever great on on foreign policy. And, you know, whenever we say, you know, we shouldn't invade some poor third world world, uh, third world backwater with some tin pot dictator who's the latest Hitler, you know, they're all Hitler. It's a, for, for neoconservatives, it's always 1938. We're always, you know, like you said before, oh, we can't appease him. Saddam Hussein could take over the world. Right. Okay. Um, you know, but it always goes back to World War II. Well, that was the good war. Well, maybe it wasn't, and maybe it could have been avoided. And it is a complicated question, but what Buchanan says in his book, and and he's not so much placing the blame in the United States as he is on England, giving a war guarantee to Poland, which they reneged on, they did not follow through with, um, that little intervention kept Poland from kind of negotiating with Hitler. Now, look, There was no solution for Hitler that was going to be painless or good, but we could have had a better solution. And what was that? Maybe they give Hitler uh, what was called at the time, I think, Danzig. It's today called Gdansk. And for Germans and Poles who are like, you know, crying over my pronunciation, I apologize. So he gets that city, which was had already voted like the recent vote in Crimea to go back to Germany. And what does he do next? He's going to march on on Russia. I mean, that was what he had been saying ever since Mein Kampf. Germany has to expand eastward. He wanted the Ukraine. Okay, it's not a great thing that he has this bloody war with the Soviets and tens of millions of die, uh, die there. But we had that anyway in World War II. What might have been avoided was the Soviets taking over half of Europe, killing many, many times more people than the Germans and subjecting half of Europe to 46 years of slavery. Maybe that could have been avoided if uh, England didn't act like the United States does now and poke its nose in there and make a promise it couldn't keep because they promised to defend Poland and then when Hitler invaded, they didn't do it anyway. So, you know, and then we got this big, huge world war. So I'm sure there's a million arguments, you know, where people go, oh, come on, come on. And believe me, there's a good argument that the that the world war could have been avoided. Every war can be avoided. And, you know, we should not be conned into the next one, which might involve China and Russia. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in 1999, Buchanan talks about uh, in his oh gosh, his book is titled A Republic, Not an Empire. And he talks about foreign policy bankruptcy. And it's the idea that look at 
the foreign policy as you would a balance sheet of here are my costs, here's my income, here's what I can afford, and here are my potential expenditures. He goes, you know that if like any country gets invaded, there's almost some sort of allegiance we have to go fight a war on their behalf, whether it's against China or Russia. We're having, a, and you know, today, of course, he didn't say it in 99, but he said NATO wasn't able uh, between 2003 and 2021 to keep the Taliban out of Afghanistan. Uh, Iraq was not the success that uh, we thought it would be. Bill Crystal said it was going to be about a two-month war. So what do you think about, you know, protecting all of Europe or Ukraine? They're talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO after they had promised in 91, James Baker promised uh, that NATO would not expand eastward because there's no more Soviet Union. There's nothing to do. And then they bring in, you know, Hungary and Poland and Slovakia and Slovakia. North Macedonia, it's like they constantly are just pushing for this war to happen. They need this enemy in order to uh, survive. Buchanan summarizes his work saying, on September 1st, 1939, 70 years ago, the German army crossed the Polish frontier. On September 3rd, Britain declared war. Six years later, 50 million Christians and Jews had perished. Britain was broken and bankrupt. Germany, a smoldering ruin. Europe had served as the site of the most murderous combat known to man, and civilians had suffered worse horrors than the soldiers. By May 1945, Red Army hordes occupied all the great capitals of Central Europe. Vienna, Prague, Budapest, Berlin, 100 million Christians were under the heel of the most barbarous tyranny in history, the Bolshevik regime, of under the regime of the greatest terrorist of them all, Joseph Stalin. What could justify these sacrifices? Not to mention the Korean War, which came after as a result of uh, communist popularity. Also the war in Vietnam and expansion into China with the uh, Communist Party having more power against Chiang Kai-shek than it otherwise would have. So th this is the good war. This is the one that uh, they <laughs> brag about. That's the only reason I mention it all uh, all the time. Last question, Tom. Any more ideas on uh, any more uh, ideas on short-term solutions and long-term solutions in the uh, fight for uh, freedom and volunteerism? Well, I, you know, I I've always said, you know, you could you could get little wins, you can get you can trick the state, you can find a loophole, whatever, and those are all great. And every single person who who finds every one of them, I applaud them. But in in the end, we really have to break the spell. We have to change people's thinking, um, and and in order to have the kind of society we want, most people have to think our way, or at least a significant minority of people have to think our way. So I'm a big homeschooling advocate. Um, I think that there's a big opportunity right now, now that parents know what they're teaching their kids in school, plus the fact that they don't care about masking them, they don't care about vaccinating them for a disease that poses no risk to children whatsoever. There, there can't be any public health um, motivation behind that. That's all corruption. Um, so, you know, we have an opportunity to say, look, pull your kids out. And, uh, you know, what happened with us is back in uh, when my daughter was uh, young, you know, we did the math and by the time we paid for daycare and then, you know, the cost of one, you know, my wife at the time earned a little less money than me. So we just made a decision to go with the higher income. Um, when we subtracted the cost of that job, the parking, the, the travel, that everything, you know, the difference started to shrink quite a bit and we were able to pull it off even when we weren't, you know, by any means fabulously wealthy you know, really take a hard look at homeschooling because the school system, 
I, the people who work in it don't even realize they're reinforcing this this statist um, religion anymore because they were brought up in it. So that that's one thing. And the other thing is just you know what Jefferson called manly firmness, firmness. And if you want to call it womanly firmness or they need firmness or whatever you want to call it, you know, you, you just have to say no. You don't have to be violent. You don't have to be belligerent. You don't even have to be rude. You could just say, no, I'm not wearing a mask anymore. I'm just not doing it. If I, if you know, you're going to make me leave your property, then that's fine. I'll take my money and go, but I'm not doing it. And you will not believe how many people around you agree with you. And, and there's a story in my book, and this is a little um, you know, off the present topic of COVID, but back during the war on terror, and I'm talking, it was on full steam. They were issuing the orange alerts for all those who remember those orange alert for terrorism today. Everybody be on your guard. I mean, just complete mania. And it was like, you would go to an airport gate, especially in a red state and a guy in a, you know, military uniform would get off the plane and that they would they would give him a standing ovation at the gate, right? Who knows if this guy's a clerk or whatever, right? <laughs> if he's wearing a government costume, he's a hero. Well, I'm waiting to get on the plane at, at the end of a long trip. And, um, you know, as usual, they said, first class and military in uniform are welcome to board. And I was just so fed up with this that I decided to utter what is sacrilege to both sides of the aisle now for the all-powerful state. I said loud enough so everyone could hear me. Um, I'm a, I'm in a taxpayer uniform. Can I get on the plane now? <laughs> and I swear to God, I thought someone was going to punch me. And all of a sudden I start to hear nervous laughter all around me. And it just told me something. It's like, I just said something that all those people laughing are afraid to say they wish they could say it. Right. And this is no joke. This is no Happy ending to the story. A, a military guy in uniform came up and thanked me. He goes, I no. hate all this stuff. I hate this thank the troops. I don't come to your job and thank you for going to work. Well, I don't get, you know, so believe me, there's a lot of support out there for irreverent, um, uh, irreligious uh, worship of the state. Um, you know, have the courage to speak up politely, however you want to do it, impolitely. And you're going to find you got a lot of allies, allies out there. Thank you to everyone for watching Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Tom Mullen talks freedom. Tom, thank you for your time, sir. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it.